the conversation should be, we should be challenging each other to both sides of the dialogue rather than trying to flatten one side into the other. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Intera Bang, a writing podcast. My name is Liam Monahan, and I'm thrilled to have as my guest today Evan Thompson. Evan Thompson is a writer, a professor of philosophy, and an associate member of the Departments of Asian Studies and Psychology at the University of British Columbia. He works on the nature of the mind, the self, and human experience. His work combines cognitive science, philosophy of mind, phenomenology, and cross-cultural philosophy, especially Asian philosophical traditions. He's the author of many books, including Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation, and Philosophy, which will be the focus of today's discussion. Dr. Thompson is also an elected fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Waking, Dreaming, Being is a really extraordinary book. It's very erudite, very learned in terms of the subject areas, and yet it's very highly accessible as well in terms of the language that you're writing with. The book offers an exploration of consciousness at the limits of both neuroscientific knowledge, as gleaned from Western science on the one hand, and phenomenological insight, as established through many centuries of meditative practice in the Asian traditions, on the other. At one point in your introduction, you plainly ask, is consciousness wholly dependent on the brain, or does consciousness transcend the brain? Given the cultural and philosophical differences between Western neuroscience and Tibetan Buddhism, how should we move forward in thinking about these issues? What follows in your book is, to use a pretty kind of cliched word, an amazing journey. You take your reader through, and this is your language here, uh, not only through cognitive science and the Indian yogic traditions of philosophy and meditation, but also through a wide range of other sources, poetry and fiction, Western philosophy, Chinese Taoism, and personal experience, all in an attempt to answer those initial research questions. So I wonder if you could start us off just by saying a bit more about your project and about the book as a whole. Yeah, so my project in general terms is the study of the mind. My academic training is both in Asian studies as an undergraduate where I studied Asian philosophy, Chinese language, Chinese history, got very interested in Buddhist philosophy, then got my PhD in philosophy, and eventually found my way into working in the area of cognitive science, so interdisciplinary scientific study of the mind. What I basically try to do in my work is to look at the mind from a multitude of different perspectives, perspectives that involve direct experience, phenomenology, to use the philosophical term of art, and different philosophical perspectives from different cultural traditions, India, the West, China, and then the current scientific study of the mind, especially in the case of Waking Dreaming Being, the study of consciousness using the tools of neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience. So I try to weave these elements together. And the basic guiding idea is that we really need that kind of rich interdisciplinary science and humanities and cross-cultural perspective to understand something like the human mind or even the mind more generally, not just the human mind, but the mind across the whole range of, of life on the planet. 
was there an initial inciting, you know, incident or curiosity that prompted you to to pursue this project or to write this book? Did you see a kind of a gap in the field that you felt you could address? Yeah. So what really immediately prompted me to write the book in the sense of the first inspiration for it was an experience I had the very first time I went to India for mm. a dialogue with scientists and philosophers and the Dalai Lama yeah. at his mm. residence in Dharamsala with other Tibetan scholars. And I had arrived, so this would have been 2007, I suppose. I arrived in Dharamsala from Toronto. I was living in Toronto at that time, professor at University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, so I arrived in Dharamsala and you know, jet lagged and you know, big time differences and went to sleep in the evening and the meeting started the next day. And during that night, I had an intensely vivid lucid dream, a dream in which you know you're dreaming. The dream was, I described the dream in the book, actually. It was, it was very vivid. I had never really had a lucid dream of that kind of vividness before. And it just struck me as kind of a nice omen, or I'm not sure what the word is, a nice coincidence or synchronicity, whatever word you like, yeah. because we were there to talk about the mind and consciousness and experience. And a lucid dream is a very peculiar state where you're sort of intimate with your own kind of the generative power of your own mind in the sleep state. Yeah. So I, I you know, woke up, wrote it down in my notebook. And then that dream narration in the notebook kind of became the first writing that I did that eventually led into the book. So, oh, wow. you know, I had been thinking in my work a lot about, and I had written before about Buddhist philosophy and cognitive science, already had one co-authored book on that topic, but I hadn't really conceived of a book specifically about the self and consciousness and how our experiences change over being awake and dreaming and lucid dreaming. And it was that experience actually, that was the kind of impetus for writing the book. So it, it very much came out of a, a sort of epiphany type experience. It was an inspirational experience that had a very literary feel to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Writerly, that, I suppose you could say. I know that there's a lot of sort of advice in like 60s sort of era <laughs> books on writing about, you know, keeping in touch with your dream self <laughs> mm -hmm. and, you know, keeping like a dream journal. So I think that sort of practice, it's really interesting to hear about the scholarly project coming out of that. Mm -hmm. We don't normally associate with the research disciplines. Yeah, no, in my own case, I would say that, I mean, I've, I've always had very vivid dreams going back to when I was a little kid and always kind of been fascinated by dreams and at different times of my life have more kind of intensively, you know, journaled my dreams. Mm. And that's always been something that has been kind of a source of ideas and insights for me in my own thinking and writing as a philosopher. Yeah. I'd like to start off, I guess, by talking about your prologue, which is entitled The Dalai Lama's Conjecture. And this prologue begins with a touching sort of personal anecdote, which I'll just read back to you. You say, when I was eight years old, my father gave me a copy of Gautama Buddha in Life and Legend by Betty Kellen. I still have the copy, a 75-cent paperback, with my name in my own handwriting on the first page. I couldn't put the book down. I read it in the backseat of our old blue Volkswagen station wagon as we drove along Highway 400 from York University in Toronto, where my father taught humanities, to our home in Bradford, Ontario, about 40 miles north. 
And then after sort of bringing the reader in through this childhood recollection, you go on to describe a conference at MIT where you were the keynote speaker giving remarks immediately after an opening address by the Dalai Lama. And it sounds like you've had some intimate experiences or at least professional experiences with the Dalai Lama at other times as well. So I'm curious to know how you settled on this genre of the prologue as a fitting way to begin your book. So I wanted to start the book in an intimate, personal way, both in the sense of trying to draw the reader in personally in an intimate way, and also doing that by way of, you know, my own experience, using that to depict the motivation behind, you know, why I'm writing this book in the first place. And so I thought a prologue was really a sort of better format for that. There is an introduction to the book as well. And in the introduction, I kind of lay out, you know, descriptively the content of the book, And introductions actually weren't always like that. That's become a thing where it's driven by media and people who write book reviews. They, Mm -hmm. you know, someone who writes a book review, especially in the world of trade writing, they want an introduction where they can read exactly what the book is about and get a summary of the book to help them write the review or decide whether to write a review. And so that's kind of how the introduction has evolved now. Of course, introductions, you know, in the past weren't necessarily like that. So I didn't want to start the book with that. I wanted to start the book with like a hook, with something personal, something vivid and something that would hopefully draw the reader in and that would encapsulate kind of the big question of the book. So that's that's why I chose to do that. And I think what happened in terms of the evolution of the writing is that I think I wrote the introduction last, actually. So, you know, Mm. I wrote the prologue and then I went into writing the chapters. And the introduction, I think I wrote after I had written the whole book and knew what I was saying in the book. And then I just kind of wrote the introduction separately. But even in the world of non-academic publishing, like so-called serious nonfiction or trade nonfiction, like almost every book has to have that introduction now Mm. for the reviewers and for Mm. the, the, you know, the media. And, you know, that's, uh, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's the world of writing we live in, but, but it's not the most exciting (laughs) writing (laughs) when one sits down to write something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great to find ways to still do that to sort of, you know, meet that convention, but then, you know, find other creative ways of expressing yourself. So I'd like to just follow up a little bit with this topic of speaking from personal experience and even in a sort of first person narrative voice, because that's not something we always see, you know, in all academic disciplines, although certainly it's very common in some. But I'm wondering, is that something that you kind of have to earn as a someone who's writing out of a scholarly tradition? You know, could you see potential graduate student listeners of this podcast, for example, getting away with that? Or is it something that you think is being introduced more and more as our ideas about authorial voice in research shift? Mm -hmm. So there's no question that, you know, if you're already a tenured professor and you have a couple of, you know, scholarly books under your belt or a series of papers, you know, you can do something like that because you have the security and maybe you could also even say the authority to be able to do that kind of thing. So in that sense, you know, you're right. It is something earned, but I, I wouldn't want to limit it to that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I have a graduate student working with me right now. Her name is Yelena Markovich. She's writing a dissertation on grief and mm-hmm. the transformative process of grief, looking at it in light of recent philosophical interest in transformative experiences. And part of her dissertation involves her narrating and accident that she had and her whole kind of recovery adaptation process and the way it was Mm -hmm. transformative of herself 
And I very much encouraged her to do this. I said, you know, you've got your own experience that you can draw on Mm. and that you can use to illustrate some of the philosophical points that you want to make. And that can be quite powerful. So I think, you know, in some philosophical traditions like phenomenology, which is about human experience, Mm. you can do that. And it's understood in a way that you should do that. And some people, if they were to write a dissertation on phenomenology, would just write about already existing phenomenological texts in philosophy. But other people would, you know, be a little bit more bold and try to weave their own experience in. And, you know, I think that that's actually quite good to do and important to do. And it can be done very well. You have to, you know, ideally, if you're a graduate student, say, you know, you need someone who's going to be sympathetic to that and who can Mm. kind of help you with that. But I do think it's, it's something that, I mean, where I see an occasion where it can be done, I encouraged it. It speaks maybe a little bit to one of my next questions, which is how the considerations of purpose and and even more so maybe audience affected the structure of this book and maybe also the language that you wrote it in. Because, of course, you know, a graduate student writing a dissertation for a committee might be constrained by their audience's expectations in a way that someone writing a, you know, a book wouldn't, depending on who their sort of imagined audience is. So who were you imagining as your readership for this book? So, of course, it's very different from a dissertation where, you know, you have a very specialized task you have to yeah. perform. In the case of this book, I was really writing for actually for a number of different audiences that I was trying to weave together. So I wanted to address people who were interested in the scientific study of the mind and the brain and recent evolving work on consciousness and the self using the tools of neuroscience. That's a particular kind of audience. And I wanted to connect them to an audience of people who are interested in Eastern thought or Asian thought, Asian philosophy, Asian meditative or contemplative practices. And then I wanted also, I suppose, to address, you know, this sort of fictional general intelligent reader who just has an interest in ideas and is drawn to writing that's strong writing or compelling writing. So I was trying to weave all of those really together in the sense of who I was thinking of. But in a way, first and foremost, the sort of home audience was the audience of people who are interested in the relationship between, say, science and religion and philosophy or science and Buddhism. There's been a lot of attention given to that in the past couple of decades. So that was my immediate audience. I have written specialized philosophy books before, Mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't that audience, but I wanted that audience to be able to see you know, value in this book, even if I wasn't specifically addressing them. So that's what I was trying to do. And, yeah, yeah. you know, how successful is for the reader to say, but that was my attempt. You you towed that line between the sort of two audiences of scholars and lay people really effectively. I'm happy to hear that, actually, because yeah. one thing I really tried hard to do was not to dumb it down, yeah. so to make it make it not presuppose particular knowledge, but at the same time, not dumb it down. And then Another thing I tried very much not to do, and I mention this because this is something you see in a lot of popular writing, is the talking down to the reader. So right. especially in, you know, like science books, you'll see authors who are, you know, either renowned scientists themselves or very, very good science writers, and they have this tendency to lecture or talk down to the reader, which I intensely dislike. Yeah. And I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to think of the writing as, you know, I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'm not going to talk down to somebody I'm having a conversation with. That's rude. So the the sort of storytelling that you do through your first person experience is a way of 
of making yourself relatable to the to the reader as well. You know, it's hard to talk down to someone when you're being so candid about your own subjective experience. Right, right. That's yeah. true. In your prologue, there's an interesting passage that just sort of struck me as being really compelling and interesting because it's a series of questions, basically, and they're very eloquently phrased, so they're not sort of stream of consciousness, maybe. But you describe the time at that MIT conference when the Dalai Lama conjectured aloud, wondering, quote, whether all conscious states even the subtlest states of luminous consciousness or pure awareness without any mental images require some sort of physical basis. And so this, I guess, is one of the kind of driving questions maybe behind the study. And then you go on to ask a number of questions. What exactly does the Dalai Lama have in mind? This is from your book. Does he mean something physical that affects or informs the brain, but isn't limited to that particular material structure? What sort of relation would there be between the physical basis and the consciousness it supports and so on? And it's not so much the content of the question specifically as I'm interested in as this questioning attitude that you adopt. Mm. It's, a, it's quite a number of questions and it just struck me that that kind of curiosity is, is really uh, engaging as a reader. I mean, this is another thing I wanted to do with this particular book is I wanted to have it be inquisitive or curious. You know, there are these really kind of fundamental questions about what's the relationship between the mind and the brain or or consciousness and the brain. And of course, you know, Tibetan Buddhists have, you know, a longstanding view about that, but that view is now you know, in dialogue and in friction, you could say, with science, which tends mm-hmm. to be of the view that, you know, consciousness is a is a biological phenomenon. So I wanted to pose the issues and explore them in a way that was framed by questions where I didn't want to presume that we actually really do know the answers to them, because fundamentally, we actually don't. I mean, we may have strong views on certain things. We may have, you know, very good reasons to think that one view is likely to be more supported by evidence than another. But at the end of the day, we don't, you know, we don't have answers to these questions. And it's presumptuous and arrogant of us to think that we do. And it's important in a cross-cultural dialogue not to just come in thinking you know the answers to everything and the point of the dialogue is to educate the other person. I mean, that's that's not how you have a conversation. So I wanted that to be the kind of animating spirit of the book is really to have it be on the one hand questioning, but on the other hand, not, I suppose you could say, just questioning, but posing questions and then following them through evidentially and argumentatively to wherever I thought they lead, at least in our present state of knowledge. And beyond the particular content of what I say, there's, I think, an idea of philosophy as fundamentally a kind of questioning. You know, Mm -hmm. Plato says philosophy begins in wonder. And so you don't want to lose that when you do philosophy. If you lose that, you know, questioning and wonder, then it, it becomes kind of dead. So I wanted to try to keep that alive and use it to animate the whole book. I think the epistemological humility of that is really inspiring as well. You close your prologue with the section that you've called staying with the open question. And in this case, the question is whether, as Buddhist traditions claim, consciousness transcends the materiality of the brain, which neuroscience can't currently conceive, or whether consciousness is directly dependent on the brain, an idea which is contradicted by the meditative experience of yogis of the Asian traditions. And your third to last paragraph in this prologue reads as a kind of methodological manifesto. You write, to stay with the open question while following wherever the argument leads requires that we be resolutely empirical in our approach. 
By this, I mean cleaving to experience and suspending judgment about speculative matters falling outside what's available to experience. Experience includes inward experience of the mind and body gained through meditation, and outward experience of the world gained through scientific observation and experimentation. In neither case can there be genuine knowledge without communal testing and agreement on what the valid findings are. Buddhism and science both share this critical and experiential stance. We often think of science and spiritual tradition, certainly, maybe Buddhism least so of the kind of great world religions, but science and, and spirituality is being inimically opposed to each other. <laughs> and so it, this marriage of the two and actually pointing out the commonalities between the two worldviews was really striking. That's definitely something that, you know, I tried to, again, follow through the whole book. I think of that in philosophical terms as a phenomenological approach. That is, mm -hmm. you know, what we're interested in is grounding knowledge through experience, mm -hmm. and we need to have a richer sense of what experience can offer than we standardly do. And the meditative, contemplative traditions not just Buddhism, actually. I mean, Buddhism is a focus for me. Also, Hindu traditions are a focus for me in that mm. book. But it's in, let's say Indian traditions, this idea of, of kind of bringing in a richer meditative contemplative perspective to enrich our understanding of what experience can be was the novel wrinkle on phenomenology compared to what phenomenology is usually considered to be in philosophical circles anyway, or mm. even in scientific circles. That's the idea there is grounding things through experience, which includes, you know, scientific examination of inward experience and also mm -hmm. science itself as a form of experience. Science is based on observation, it's based on measurement and agreement, so it, it's a refined form of experience. That's the idea there. And then, again, I wanted to, you know, for every kind of case of something that I'm talking about, whether it's mind-wandering or dreaming or lucid dreaming, I wanted to illustrate it through actual narratives of experience, sometimes mine, sometimes other people, sometimes from literature. And so that's kind of in keeping with, with that method that I'm using as well. I have a question about diction, because there are many words in this book which, in sort of common parlance or common usage, have many different possible meanings and interpretations, but they they might have very specific denotations in various scientific, philosophical, and religious traditions. So these are words like consciousness, mind, self, ego, dreaming, very slippery words, which I suppose presents a kind of a problem for you to solve in terms of terminology and definition, because these words aren't incidental to your knowledge contribution, but they're really, you know, essential to method and theory and practice. And I guess one other consideration here is that you're working with some words that have been translated. There are a lot of words that pretty early on in the book, I have to actually say quite precisely, you know, here's how I understand the meaning of these terms, which is not yeah. to say that somebody else couldn't define them differently, but for my purposes, this is how I'm going to define them. So I yeah. mean, just to give an example, and I say, I'm going to use consciousness to mean awareness, the changing contents or objects of awareness, and the feeling of self that's bound up with that. And that's actually a model of consciousness that comes from Indian philosophical traditions. Mm. Now, there are translational issues definitely as you say there are you know words in in sanskrit that you know sometimes get rendered as consciousness sometimes get rendered as mind sometimes yeah. get rendered as cognition and yeah. you know each translator 
depending on the text, is going to have to make a decision. And I'm working with their decisions. And I mean, I'm aware of the words and and the issues involved in translating them, but I'm sort of working with their decisions. So, you know, the way that I try to handle this is basically one, to be as precise as I can be. Mm. And Two, to explain to the reader, you know, exactly how I'm using a particular word and to give examples that illustrate the use. But then also, as much as I can, whether it's neuroscience or whether it's, say, Indian philosophy, to let the traditions speak for themselves. I mean, they have their own ideas about what these words mean, say, in neuroscience, in an experimental context, why a particular concept is being defined in the way that it is, Mm. or in Indian philosophy, a particular idea of self, why it's being defined in the way that it is. So I, I use these materials, but I also try to do justice to how the traditions themselves think those concepts need to be defined. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's what philosophers do. So yeah. I think philosophers, <laughs> you know, they can get lost in definitions and in, you know, mm. a kind of over-precision sometimes. But generally speaking, philosophers are pretty good at that. That's like what they're yeah. trained to do is to track words and concepts. I mean, they're not yeah. the only ones, of course. You know, people in literary studies also do this in, in their own way. That's part of the philosophical craft, I guess you could say. Yeah. I can remember when I was first starting to read Buddhist texts, the confusion that I had around self, because it's so different from the way we talk about self in in the West, which is really, we're talking about, you know, something closer to ego maybe or something (laughs) when we just sort of talk about ourselves or, or our identities or something, you know, these fuzzy words, seeing these concepts laid out so clearly in your book was very clarifying. We've already mentioned that your book stands as a kind of an attempt to reconcile scientific and spiritual knowledge or maybe even experience. And so these are, you know, methodological considerations for your project, but they're also considerations that have social or political consequences potentially. Um, And you address some of these at the end of your introduction. And so I'd like to close with gesturing towards the future that you leave us with, I guess. And so you write, I hope to demonstrate a new way to relate science and what many people like to call spirituality. Instead of being either opposed or indifferent to each other, cognitive science and the world's great contemplative traditions can work together on a common project, understanding the mind and giving meaning to human life. By enriching science with contemplative knowledge and contemplative knowledge with cognitive science, we can work to create a new scientific and spiritual appreciation of human life, one that no longer requires or needs to be contained within either a religious or an anti-religious framework. So you wrote those words in mm-hmm. 2015, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, actually earlier, because it was published in 2015. I probably okay. wrote them in like 2013 or something, but anyway. Yeah, but I, I wonder, what would you say about what's happened to these conversations either in sort of popular discourse Mm. or in scholarly circles since 2015? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question because my own thinking has changed in certain respects. So, I mean, I would say that certainly in the case of that book and what you read, what I was really trying to do was to illustrate how a religious spiritual tradition or religious spiritual traditions in the plural can engage in a conversation with science and science can engage in a conversation with them without it having to be either using science to try to validate or prove religion or rejecting religion as somehow outmoded 
and superstitious or something like that. Yeah. And so yeah. I fundamentally am still committed to that. That is as necessary now as when I wrote those words. The difference maybe in terms of how I think about it now is that, you know, I'm using religion in a, in a particular way there. And I actually have come to think that that the way I was using religion was probably, you know, is in some ways too limited mm. that, you know, so a lot of people like to say I'm spiritual, but not religious or spirituality without religion. So mm. I, I now actually think, and this was the subject of my most recent book, which was published last year called Why I'm Not a Buddhist. I'm now inclined to think that spirituality without religion is a problematic way of thinking because it relies on a kind of very narrow sense of what religion is. A kind of mm. idea of thinking about religion is just a matter of what you believe. You know, do you believe in God or do you believe in, you know, the soul or do you think there is no soul or, you know, sort of belief approach to religion, which from a anthropological or historical perspective is very limited way of thinking about religion. It's very influenced by Protestant Christianity that you would think religion is about beliefs rather mm. than about community and ritual and shared practices that, you know, give meaning to life. So I wouldn't quite word it the same way as yeah, yeah. now as I as I did then. I mean, the way I would think about it now is that a healthy culture is like a healthy ecosystem. You have mm. many species interacting with a lot of biodiversity. And in the case of human culture, cultural diversity is, you know, science and philosophy and art and religion. And, you know, religion is an important part in the mix and religion is the traditional home for spiritual practice. And it may be possible to develop some aspects of spiritual practice in a more secularized way. That's certainly doable. The passage you read suggests a kind of like, we're going to evolve beyond religion into something like post-religious. And that mm. I'm a little bit skeptical of now. I think it's more okay. a matter of enriching our understanding of religion and seeing it as an important element in the human ecosystem, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Was there something that you read or that you sort of saw happening in the world that prompted that shift or? Yeah, actually it was through my involvement in the science Buddhism dialogue Uh. and what I saw happening in that dialogue and how it was evolving where there was a tendency to devolve into Mm. either trying to use science to justify Buddhism and to say Buddhism is unique and exceptional and different from other religions because it's more scientifically justifiable. I mean, that's in popular discourse and it's in scientific discourse yeah. among people who study meditation. So yeah. that's what I call Buddhist exceptionalism in my new book. Okay. So that yeah. combined with a general misunderstanding in the dialogue of what religion is really about from a mm-hmm. cultural, historical, anthropological perspective. Mm-hmm. So it was mm-hmm. it was really through further study and thinking and watching how the dialogue was kind of going into either scientists trying to justify Buddhism or Buddhists trying to use science to justify or to embellish Buddhism. And I thought, no, that's not actually the way the conversation should be going. The conversation mm-hmm. should be, we should be challenging each other to both sides of the dialogue rather than trying to flatten one side into the other. Mm. And that was already happening in my thinking when I was writing Waking Dreaming Being, but it really kind of came more to prominence for me after I had written Waking Dreaming Being. So my my last book is all about this. It was published, yeah, 2020, uh, right before the pandemic struck. The book book was published, actually. (laughs) So it's called Why I'm Not a Buddhist, and it's, uh, it's shorter than Waking Dreaming Being, and it goes into all of this. I guess it makes me wonder 
when you have this sort of <laughs> trail of books that you're leaving behind because you have written many books um, and you know that you've had previous selves or, or positions mm-hmm. that you've presented through your work. Do you think about that when you're starting a new book? Do you try to relate to that person that wrote Waking Dreaming Being or or do you just sort of start with a tabula rasa? <laughs> um, well, I, neither one in a way. So, I mean, I definitely don't start with a tabula rasa because I'm yeah. always... yeah kind of coming at it from somewhere, but I don't self-consciously try to link my books. Okay. I think a book is like a book is like a child. I mean, you you have a role in creating it. A lot of the creation is actually out of your sort of immediate control, yeah, yeah. Um, though you might think otherwise. And then it goes mm-hmm. out into the world and it has its own life out in the world. And then you move on and you work on another book and, you know, there might be occasions where you do need to think about the relationship between the two, but I generally don't do it that way. I generally treat each project as a kind of creative project in its own right. And I think if I tried to think about how it related to earlier things, it would just get in the way of what I'm doing here and now. I would lose mm. the spontaneity and the and the freshness. I mean, of course, I do step back, especially, you know, as a philosopher, I'm sort of supposed to do this. I do step back yeah. and think, what about, you know, is it consistent with this or have yeah, I changed my yeah. thinking? I mean, of course, I, th- I do think about those things, but I, yeah. I don't try to think about them while I'm doing the writing. Right, right. Well, I hope that the problem of being so prolific is one we can all, <laughs> we can all have one day, maybe. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Thompson, for speaking with me today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to talk. Interabang, a writing podcast, is an open access educational resource created by the Center for Writing and Scholarly Communication at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. Pre-production was completed by Liam Monaghan and Bo Lehman. Audio engineering was completed by Arya M. Picaris. Visit our website, writing.library.ubc.ca, to learn more about the services and resources through which we support writing at UBC.